Grab a Bible. We're going to um, detour a little bit tonight. I know I told you we'd be doing Leviticus 19 and 20 tonight. We put that out on Instagram and all that stuff, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour, and I want you to turn to two different places in the scriptures. Um, they're actually the both, both the same story, but in two different places. So 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and 1 Kings chapter 19. So 1 Kings 19 is where you want to maybe put like a marker and a, or a piece of paper or something, you know, person sitting next to you's finger, whatever. And then, but then we're going to start in Exodus, or excuse me, Lord help me in the name of Jesus. Okay. Second Chronicles chapter 32. So Second Chronicles 32 verse 20 and 21. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. I want to read it now from the New Living Translation. Then King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to God in heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed the Assyrian army and all its commanders and officers. And Father, tonight, oh Lord, thank you that you are here with us. And we're not doing this out of some religious obligation, that you are risen. We are here to worship a living God. You're in our presence right now. We're in your presence right now. Holy Spirit, we are calling out to you and asking you to help us have more than just uh, a lecture. Lord, we need, to, we need to encounter you. We need to let your scriptures come alive and there's not any combination of words I could put together to make an anointing happen, God. I need your anointing and the power of your spirit. But I just wanna pray, Lord, would you just have your way tonight? Would you just... Teach us, maybe remind us of stuff we already know, but may it just be a, a word fitly spoken for tonight. And so, Lord, give me grace to teach it, but Lord, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. So the text I just read, uh, I hope I got that right, by the way, Second Chronicles 32, 20, was the text that was in my, just my morning devotions. As I get up, like many of you, I'm sure, try to get up early before, you know, the rest of everyone in the house and just get some time alone with Jesus. And I'm just reading kind of systematically through the Old Testament, and I'm in Second Chronicles. And there's a lot of context that, that happened in this, but what really just stuck out to me um, this morning, just in my own personal reading, was that phrase right there where it says, then Hezekiah, the king of uh, the king and, and Isaiah, the prophet, son of Amos, prayed because of this. They cried to the Lord of heaven. The Lord sent an angel. Who cut off. And what really got me was just this right here. You ready? I'll just kind of take out some of the phrases and get to the nitty-gritty of what the verse says. Then Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed, and God sent an angel. I mean, that's really what it says. There's other details in there, but what it says is they prayed, and God sent an angel. A little further down, it, it says... In those days, Hezekiah, verse 24, became sick to the point of death. He prayed, and the Lord gave him a sign. And what I just was meditating on this morning was prayer once again. 
And I don't know about you, but to me, prayer is, is, is mysterious because I, I can't sometimes reconcile how this almighty, sovereign God outside of time, outside of space, who never was created, who always was, knows all things, can do all things, and yet when his people pray, he moves. You see, by connotation, when you read that verse, they prayed and then God sent an angel and delivered them. And what you can deduce from that is like, had they not prayed, would, have God, would God have sent an angel? I don't know. Maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have. But this I know. When they prayed, God said, okay. And he sent salvation. This, in this context, an angel. And what I want us to just not just pass by or think because we've been Christians for 20 years, we get this down. But what I want us to think about and put into practice here in a few minutes is that God responds when his people pray. Not one amen. God responds when his people pray. Amen? Amen or not amen. Maybe you don't amen that because you haven't found it to be true. But I want to tell you something. God responds when his people pray. Now, I am like you. I am with you. I know there's problems with prayer. Not in reality, but in my mind, because I've prayed at times and I haven't seen an answer or I haven't seen the answer that I want to see or in the time I want to see it. But when you pull back and you look at the evidence of the scripture and the reality of your life, when it's all said and done, God responds to prayer. He answers prayer. One of my favorite quotes about prayer, not from the Bible, but from a Bible guy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Wish I could just phrase stuff like that. So, nobody talks like that. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. That the omnipotent, almighty God would respond to the prayer of a finite me? Does that blow your mind or is it just me? That God would hear our prayers, that he would answer our prayers. One of my favorite verses on prayer is from Isaiah. And it says this in, in 64 Verses one through four, I'll just read it, write it down in your notes so you can read it later. It's one of those you want to have in your arsenal. 64, one through four. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and fierce, uh, and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and the nations might tremble at your presence. Anybody been calling out that prayer lately? Lord, just show up. Show off who you are. Verse 3, when you, did answer, uh, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's referring to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Verse 4, this is the verse. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait on him. When God's people wait upon him, when they call upon him, when they cry out to him in prayer, God responds. Now, I'm not going to tell you that he always sends an angel or always does it in the way we want it to happen, but he responds. And I would just cut to the chase right now. I have lots of other material we're going to talk about for a second, but I just want to cut to the chase that we're going to come back to at the end, is that I don't know what you're up against tonight. Because it's real easy just to come to church, put on the church thing, Nothing, nothing wrong with that. We don't have to just wear our you know, dirty laundry out for everybody to see. But I just want to remind you of something tonight. God sees where you are right now. He knows if you're stressed out about the economy, and he knows that you're teetering in your marriage, and he understands 
the depression, and he's, he's very, you know, tuned into your whatever state that you're in. And there might even be some of you that are facing a time-sensitive prayer urgency, where that if, God, you don't come through, we're kind of cooked on this. And you don't need to raise your hand, but I'm just guessing statistically in a room with just this many people, there's got to be at least one, maybe two of us, that could just say, amen. And certainly there'll be some of varying degrees of importance or urgency. But even at some point in your life, there's going to be a time where you're like, God, I'm crying out to you because I don't have an option B, and you got to come through. So I want to talk a little about about what led up to this statement that Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed and God sent an angel. I just want to give you a little, it's a lot of context, a lot of wonderful story that I'm not going to do all the details, but I just want to answer a few questions. I'm a who, what, when, where, why guy. So the what is they were praying, the who is Hezekiah. Who is Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah was actually one of the best kings that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. I'm not just giving you these little Bible tidbits just to fill up time. There's actually a reason for this. I'm telling you this. He's one of the best kings, one of the most godly kings that, that the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, in their, that time of history, you'll, you'll remember that the, the nation was split into two. There was the northern tribes of Israel, southern tribes of Judah. Northern tribes had zero good kings, and the southern tribes had a mixed bag. Um, Hezekiah goes down as one of the greatest. In fact, it says, I'm just going to read, this is from 2 Kings 18. Verse 3, I'm just going to read some to you. Um, Speaking of Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, not many guys get that. Not many guys, they might have said, he did well, but not like David. But this guy gets, he did well, he did what was right in God's eyes, even like his, his father David, who was like the bar. And it says he removed the high places. You, you scooch down a few verses. It says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was, listen to this phrase, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those that were before him. Did you hear that? There was not a king that was better than Hezekiah after him or before him when it was divided into Judah and Israel. That's, these are high praises is what I'm getting at. For he held fast to the Lord. He didn't depart from following him. He kept the commandments of the Lord and the commandments of Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. And he prospered. He rebelled against Assyria. And he wouldn't serve them. Now that's important. He rebelled against Assyria. Assyria was the superpower of the day. In Hezekiah's time, they had already taken the northern tribes captive. It was kind of, if you're thinking geographically, it would be like part of Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey that made up Assyria, this mega power came down and they were ruthless. And they took the northern captive, northern tribes captives and he rebelled against them. They were kind of like paying taxes to him. And Hezekiah's like, we're not doing that anymore. Why? Because it was the wrong thing to do. We're God's people. We're not doing that anymore. And he rebelled, which was actually a good thing. Sometimes as a Christian, it's good to be a rebel. All that to say is that he goes down he goes down as one of the greatest kings in history. Now, just tuck that away. Again, this is not just hopefully useless information. It, I'm kind of building a point here. Um, now, that's who he was, but why was he praying? So we talked about, okay, he made this prayer, and God sent an angel, okay, whatever that means, but why was he even praying? He was praying because they were at war. 
If you scooch back to the first verse of 2 Chronicles 32, it says that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded and encamped against all the cities of Judah and and the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. You can read that in 2 Kings 18 and 19 as well. What happened was, and I will just really quickly summarize this. There's so many details. If I forget some or get some wrong, forgive me. Go back and and read it. I'm, I'm kind of shooting from the hip tonight, but... Um, what happened was when, they re- when he rebelled against Assyria, they did not take that lightly, and they marched, and they came down to Judah. Now, you have to think in your mind of what this map looks like. They come from the, the north. They come down into Judah. Judah is like where Jerusalem is, all the cities of Judah. This is like deep into the heart of God's people's country. And it says they go up and they take all the fortified cities that are surrounding Jerusalem. It's not like they, they literally take them, invade them, take their stuff. You have to keep in mind, cities there were like city-states. They had like wall, literal walls around them. You were as strong as your wall. And they would come in and if, you know, they couldn't break you down your wall, they'd just wait you out until you were starving to death. And then they would just beat you that way. But they, they were taking all the cities. They end up camped out right in front of Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah saw some of this happening. They diverted some water. Anybody ever been to Israel, Hezekiah's tunnel? That's his credit because of this. All of this thing, stuff was happening. He was doing his best. But at the end of the day, he was freaked. And he cried out to God. He went and he, and he sends a message to Isaiah. Isaiah comes back again. I'm paraphrasing, but Isaiah says, basically, look, don't be scared. Don't be scared. I'm gonna, I'm gonna divert him, basically. You're not gonna have to fire one. He's not gonna fire one arrow into your city. Now, what happened is, as, as you know, he prayed about that and all this stuff, and um, there was this guy sent from Sennacherib called Rabshakeh. Anybody remember this? There was, it's like an official, and he came down, and he sat in a very strategic point where all the people of Israel could hear him, Rabshakeh, and he just starts ancient trash talk basically, to Hezekiah. And he's like, look, I don't know what Hezekiah is telling you, but you can't trust in God. Hey, look around, people. Have any of the other countries and their gods stood up against us? And the answer would be no. They literally had wiped everybody out. And he's like, don't trust in Hezekiah. And I hope you're not trusting in Egypt because they're like a staff. If you lean on, it's gonna break and stick you in the hand. You can't trust them. We're going to take you over. Don't listen to him. This God of yours is gonna save you and he's, he's blaspheming God. And, and, then he, and then, ultimate trick of the enemy, he's like, and look, if you just join with us, we have a peace treaty, we're going to give you land to have and food to eat. By the way, when you make a spiritual application of that, when the enemy says, just surrender to me, it'll be so great, it's usually not true, right? Just give in to your flesh, give in to sin, it'll be great, it'll be, no, it's, it's a trick. That's another sermon. But all that to say is that what was going on, and it just so happens that a rumor happens that the, the, you know, they had to get out of there because the, you know, there was a fight going on up in the north and they, get, they went away. They leave the troops. Rabshakeh basically goes, but look, don't think this is over. We're coming back and you're dead. And they, they writes that letter and he sends it to Hezekiah's messengers. Hezekiah grabs that letter and reads it and he's crushed. You guys... He is literally surrounded. We find out later there's 185,000 hardened Assyrian troops waiting outside their front yard to kill them. You think you'd be freaked out? So that's why they were praying, is because they were at war. 
I do want to notice one little thing here in chapter 32, again, verse 1. I want you to also notice when they were at war and why they were praying. It says, verse 32, or verse 1 of chapter 32, after these things, these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. I just want to point that out. Listen, if you read Hezekiah's story, don't lose me. When did Assyria attack? After his great acts of faithfulness. The chapter before this that I'm not going to get into basically chronicles how King Hezekiah opened up the temple. His dad was a loser. His dad was an absolute idol worshiper who shut down the temple, put idols in the temple, put idols all around the country, basically drove the country spiritually into the dirt. And Hezekiah, as a young man, 25 years old, when he took over the, the reins, and he said, I'm going to live for God. I don't care how my parents lived, how my, the example my dad set. I'm not going to be the victim to that. I'm going to live for God. And that's a word for somebody. You don't have to be the victim of how your parents lived or everybody else. You, young man, young woman, you can live for God. And Hezekiah was that guy. And he's like, I'm 25, and here's what we're going to do. We're opening the temple. We're going to clean it out. We're going to recommission the priests and the Levites. We're going to get those things in order. And, you know, we're going to do the Passover. We haven't done the Passover in who knows how long. And they were a little late, so they did it in the second month. And then they were having such a good time, they extended it for another week. And it says, like, it had not been like this since the days of Solomon. He brought joy, revival. I mean, he was bringing, like, God back into the center focus of the country. He was faithful. He was good. I read you his character and all the kudos. So when did the enemy attack him? After all these acts of faithfulness, I do not think that that is in there by accident or just some kind of time marker. Guys, when does the enemy attack? When you're faithful, when you're fruitful, when you stop living for yourself and you start living for God, when you said, I'm going to start going to church again, I'm going to re- pick up my Bible again, I'm going to stop sleeping with my boyfriend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you know, whatever, I'm going to get serious about following God, I'm going to, you know, I'm not perfect and I'm not making all these promises, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start following God. That's when the enemy attacks. And guys, there is this thing, and I don't know if it's just like an American thought or just like a human thought, but sometimes we can be under this false impression that if I'm a good boy, if I'm a good girl, if I do things well and pay my taxes and don't cuss and, you know, try not to flip people off and, you know, or whatever when I'm angry or not drop in on anybody or whatever, if I'm just a good person and positive vibes and all that stuff, then things will go well for me. It's almost like God kind of owes me a good existence. Can I just tell you that the Bible actually teaches the opposite of that? That the, the more godly you want to live, the Bible says, oh, there's, that's awesome, there's a promise for you. You're going to get persecuted. All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a verse that we love or like, but, you know, even if it's not some outward persecution, there is a very real spiritual war that goes on that we don't see around us. You know, earlier on, what, what, what Hezekiah says to the people, he says, look, even though I know, I know you see the 185,000 people surrounding, with all, I know you see all the swords and the spears and the bows and the arrows and the rocket launchers and all that stuff, but what does he say? There's more with us than there is with them because they're coming at us with the strength of man, but the Lord our God is fighting our battles. There's a very real spiritual warfare that, that happens, and you tick off the enemy when you start living faithful for God, and you're gonna feel that resistance. Pastor Steve said that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if it was him, I heard this recently, if I've 
repeated it, forgive me, but um, I heard a pastor say, I'm trying to think who it was, maybe it was Jim Symbol or one of those guys listening to a podcast, but he was talking about how, you know, in, in sports, if you are playing basketball, basketball is back in session, if you're playing basketball and you're awesome on offense and you're like, you know, you're dribbling down and you make a layup, and if you guys are familiar with basketball, right? Okay, so after you make the layup, you turn around, automatically you are on what we call defense. But let's just say, defense, I don't really feel like running all the way down there. And there's a guy who's like assigned to you. But if you're just like, no, nah, I'm good, don't worry, I'll just catch it next time it comes down to the offensive side of the court. Do you really think that the opposing team's going to waste any of their time and energy on you? If you're not playing, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Or on offense, you're like, I don't really want to play offense. I just like defense. So I'll just dribble the ball or I'll just stand there. I'm not really getting ready for a pass. Do you think they're going to be like, you know, hopefully nobody actually plays like that anyways. But the point is, is that if you're no threat to the opposing team, they're going to leave you alone. And if you're no threat to the opposing team spiritually, he's going to leave you alone because you're doing just fine without him. But when you say, I'm going to raise my kids to love Jesus, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to press in, I just want to know God more, then all hell goes on alert. One of my favorite slash unfavorite verses in the Bible is when Paul confronts the sons of Sceva. Do you guys remember this story? Acts 19? And they were like, Jewish exorcists who were like, they're like, hey, in the name of, oh, no, Paul didn't confront them. This is how it went. They were like, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, come out of that person. And in one case, the demons answered back and said, Jesus we know. Paul we know. Who are you? What scares me about that verse is they're like, they knew Paul. Like, they talked about Paul evidently in hell or in spiritual realms. And I say this very humbly, not in a cocky way, but in a sense, I kind of want hell to know my name because I want to be a threat to his kingdom. But if that's the case, guess what you expect in return? Confrontation spiritually, persecution, a coming against. There's nothing to be afeared, uh, afeared, (laughs) I literally just said a feared. Um, nothing to be afraid of because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? But my point is, is that it was when Hezekiah was doing good that the enemy came against him. Okay, lastly, last thing, we lo- he was praying. Why was he, who was he, who was praying? It was Hezekiah. Why? They were at battle. When? Because they were doing well. But I want to look lastly. Now, this is where I want you to turn over to, to 2 Kings chapter 19. And I'm not going to turn this into a long thing, but... I just want to read this and point out a couple of things. I want to look at how he was praying. Anybody want to learn how to pray better in here? I do. Here's what it says. Now, we're jumping into this. This is after Hezekiah received that threatening letter from the enemy. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. That's such a key right there. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Verse 17, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please. I love that. Just throws a please in there. Please, from his hand, listen that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. I certainly won't exhaust this, but let me pull out a couple of pro tips on prayer. When Hezekiah prays, he prays, number one, with desperation. You've heard me talk about this before. He prays with desperation. It says in that chapter I read that he prayed. In the text we started with in 2 Chronicles 32, it says that he and um, Isaiah, what? Cried out to God in prayer. To me, there's kind of a difference in saying a prayer and crying out to God in prayer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's times when you pray and God hears those and he honors those and those are wonderful. There are other times where you get alone, you fall on your face and tears are flowing down and you say, oh God, right? Example, Peter steps out of the boat, walking towards Jesus. When he started to sink, do you think he said a prayer or do you think he cried out? Oh, Lord, if it is in your will to save your servant from this certain destruction of the sea. No, he was just like, help me, you know, and God like curled him up out of the water. Certainly not every time we pray, we're going to pray with this desperation. But there are times, you guys, when we need to, and I'm not saying God like is, is like, oh, they're showing emotion, so I'll listen more, or something like that. But there comes a time when we have to stop relying on everybody else, stop relying on who else we can call or who else we can inform or what, else, what other strategy we can employ, and we just come and say, God, this is it. Notice what he did. He spread out the letter. What is he saying? Look what they're saying, God. Look at these bills. Look at this threat. Look at the... I, and guess what? God is true. They're stronger than me. We don't have, enough, we don't have the army to fight these guys. And what they said is true. They've, just, they've swallowed up every other nation. God, you've got to help us. They cried out in desperation. I don't know what you're going through tonight, but I think there's a couple that might need to just, with desperation. And again, I'm not saying, like, work up some fake emotion. What I'm saying is, leave it all before God and realize, stop leaning on plan B. There's no plan B sometimes. You just got to say, God, if you don't help us, we, we're dead. Amen? It's good to come to God like that. Just lay. What was he doing when he laid out that letter? He was laying it before God and in a sense walking away saying, God, now I can't do this. So in a sense, I say this respectfully. It's on you. I'm giving it to you now, God. He prayed with desperation. I like how he reminded God or actually, maybe I should put it this way. He reminded himself who God is. This is so good to do in prayer. O Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. How many of you guys have, have figured out, um, before you go to God with your problems, sometimes it's good to remind yourself of who it is you're praying to? How many of you guys sometimes go into a prayer time and your problem is way bigger than God in your mind? But then you stop. This is a discipline, by the way, I think. 
This is a discipline because my, my, my normal tendency is just step into prayer and go, I need this, and if you've got to do this, sometimes it's better just to say, before I ask you anything, God, you already know what I'm going to say. You're God. You're holy. Let me think for a second. You didn't get created. You always were. Lord, those mountains with that waterfall, you made that. You spoke that into existence. There is nothing. And you just start praising God, and you start reminding. You're not reminding God of who he is. You're reminding yourself of who God is. And like I've said before, I heard it from another pastor. I'm stealing it. It is now mine. We need to be big godders, not small godders, big godders. We need to believe in a big God who's still able to do anything. And and it's almost like he reminds himself of that. And then what does he do? He lays out the situation. He just says it like it is. This is what they're saying they're going to do. This is what's going to happen. And he lays it out. And guys, I like that. That's like Philippians 4, where it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. It's not that God doesn't know your request, but there's something about articulating it and saying, God, this is what I need you to do, and this is how I see it. Oh, God, help. And then he just asks him to help. He says, save us, please. Amen? Sometimes you're just like, I I just need you to save me. Help me. Now, this is what I love, and this is easily missed if we don't pay attention. But notice what he said at the last part of that section in 2 Kings 19. O Lord our God, save us, please, from this hand. Listen, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Yes, he wanted deliverance. But his prayer had less to do with his safety and comfort and more to do with the glory and reputation of God. Now, this is where prayer gets real mature. When you say, God, I want you to save me out of this predicament, and I want you to deliver me, and I want you to step in, but ultimately what I want is for you to get all the glory so that everybody else looking into my situation would say, that was God who did that. Amen? Amen? Now, in this case, guess what? He sent an angel and in one night killed 185,000 troops. By the way, I like the way it reads, an angel. Not like a group of angels. He sent an angel and smote, to be King James-ish, 185,000 troops in one night. And that was what God wanted to do to bring the most glory. And he saved and delivered Hezekiah and Jerusalem. Okay, so, so really, guys, just what's on my heart tonight. Because I got stuff going on with me. You got stuff going on with you. Church has got stuff going on. We, we all got stuff going on. I don't know where you're at. But somebody needs to cry out to God tonight. Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed and God sent. And some of you guys need to cry out to God. And, and I, I, I'm not telling you God's going to send an angel and, and just swoop in and I don't know how he's going to respond. I don't know what he's going to do. But what if we prayed with desperation and we laid out our request before God and with faith just said, but God, in my situation, come through, but do whatever brings you the most glory. Amen? And some of us need to pray that tonight. I'll close. Uh, Austin, would you mind cruising up here and just maybe, yeah, a little music. So we're going to, when I close, what we're going to do is a little something different tonight. I'm going to have us all stand in a moment. We'll dim the lights. And I'm just going to have some, some prayer 
teams up here. You guys know who they are already, and they're going to come up. And you can either spend some time crying out to God right where you are. You can come up here. There's nothing more spiritual about up here, but sometimes getting out of your seat and getting on your face before God is, is kind of this outward you know, demonstration of what's going on inwardly. If you want to partner up and pray with somebody, we've got people that want to minister to you in prayer in that way. But let me read to you this quote, and then we'll, we'll do that. It's from Ian Bounds. Anything you can ever find on Ian Bounds about prayer, read it. He says, The prayers of all the saints are a perpetual force against all the powers of darkness. These prayers are a mighty energy in, the overcoming, in overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil, and in shaping the destiny of God's movements to overcome evil and to get the victory over the devil and all of his works. The character and the energy of God's movement lie in prayer. Victory is to come at the end of praying. Let's all stand. Father, we come to you tonight. We're desperate for you, Jesus. And even if there's not anything desperately pushing against our lives personally right now, Lord, all we have to do is look up and out at the world that we're in, a world living in fear, a world that is clearly being pushed by the enemy and its agenda. Lord, so much division and hatred and pride and so many things going on and it is suffocating God. We need you to step into our country. We need to step, you to step into our island. We need you to step into this world in a way and just stop what the enemy's trying to do, Lord God. And in some people's lives tonight, Lord, they need you to intervene right now, tonight, in their situation. And so, Lord, I commit them to you. In Jesus' name.